The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 is what you heard read this morning. This is, this is really an amazing section of Scripture. It, what it's about is the fact that this group of people, these Thessalonians, had received a message from somebody claiming that it had come from the Apostle Paul. And what the message said was, we're in the day of the Lord. That's why things are so difficult. The day of the Lord, as we talked about it back in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, is a time first of judgment and then of blessing. It begins with what Paul has described in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13, with the rapture of the church. That is that the church will be, what the Thessalonians were worried about was that they'd come to faith in Christ and some of them had passed away before Jesus came. And they didn't think that would happen. They thought that Christ was coming back so soon that they would all be there and alive and participate in this great event. But instead, some of them had died. And so some of these Thessalonians had worried, what's, what's happening? And somebody came along and said, we got the news that the day of the Lord has arrived. And that's why there's so much suffering and affliction and persecution. And so Paul is straightening them out about this. What I want, I do want to mention this is that this is a common problem among the people of God throughout our history, is that there's always somebody coming along and having a message. And it, it seems credible, but it contradicts the word of God. And so what, what we have to do is to make sure we understand how that message measures up, measures up with the word of God. Now, right at the beginning of the Bible is an account where somebody gave a false message that supposedly they were supposed to believe, and they did, and it caused the fall of man. Chapter 3, it says, this is Genesis chapter 3, I'm now. You can find Genesis, right? It's the first book in the Bible, so it's easy to find. Genesis chapter 3 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, if you remember back in chapter 2, this is what happened. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying that this is what God, this is the word of God. God says, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. Now, this is what the woman responds to the serpent as he tells her, are you been told you cannot eat of all the trees in the garden? And uh, down in verse, the next verse, it says, the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. That was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But the servant, he's giving us a different word. Here's the serpent. He says to the woman, you will not surely die. In other words, God's told you a lie. You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And that's exactly what the text says happened. Their eyes were opened. And it says, open in this sense, it was open to understand good and evil because they experienced it through, through disobeying God. The first act of disobedience in the creation after the, after the creation was completed. And he, and he said, for God, this is what the serpent is telling the woman, 
For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Have you noticed there's a little bit of evil in the world? In fact, sometimes it's overwhelming, isn't it? This thing that happened yesterday, all this shooting and craziness. Somebody completely, uh, it's, it's easy to say they were out of their minds. But it's also true they were evil. It was an evil thing to do. It was a manifestation of evil. Now I notice they're going to do a TV program called Evil. Have you seen that? It's coming up. I don't know. I think it's on CBS. It's going to be a series, a weekly series uh, about evil. And I think, yeah, evil is very much present with us. But we're going to see it in its context today as we look at 2 Thessalonians. But what I wanted to point out is that this is something that we have to realize happens a lot. It has happened throughout the history of God's people and their relationship with him. It's happened throughout the history of the church. It happened in our lifetime that people come along with messages that they say is from God. Well, how do I know? How can I tell if it's from God or if it's from some other source? Well, the way I can tell is this, that we are told in the Bible that, that what Jesus did during his lifetime was he validated the Old Testament. He said it was the word of God. He, he actually, let me read you the quote if I can find it. Here it is right here on the back of this little sheet. Uh, this is what Jesus says to them in John eight twenty eight to the Pharisees who lived under the law. He said to them, when you lift up the son of man, and that means lift him up to, to crucify him, then you will know that I am. Now, that was a great offense to them because that, was, that expression, I am, came, comes right out of the Old Testament. It's a, it, is these, it is what God alone can say. You can't say that. You can say, I'm overweight, I'm tired, or whatever, but you can't say, I am, ego e me. That is, that I am Yahweh. Is, in fact, that's what Yahweh comes from. It comes from this verb, I am. God has life in himself. The big word for it is that he has self-existence. He has self-existence. He doesn't need anything outside of himself. Have you noticed that you need things in order to stay alive? You know, you have to have food and water and air and companionship and all kinds of things. You have to have these things in order to live. But God has life in himself. He has what the theologians call a saiety. Life in himself. He doesn't, he'll never need life support. He'll never need anybody to supply him anything. As he said, if, if I was hungry, you think I would consult you to give me food? No, he is almighty God. He has life in himself. That's the God that we serve, who made us in his image, but not with that characteristic. So he says in in John 8, he says to these Pharisees, he says, when you lift up the Son of Man, when you go to crucify him, then you will know that I am. That is, you will come to realize that I am the God who has life in himself. And I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak those things which the Father taught me. Jesus says what he has told all of us, what he told everybody during his lifetime on this earth was simply he was passing on the message from the Father to these people. I speak from the Father. And he goes on, he says, he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. 
So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. It will set you free. They answered him, we're Abraham's descendants. These were Jewish people, descendants of Abraham. We are Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. It was an affront to them that he was said they could become his disciples because they said, we are children of Abraham. And Jesus answered them in verse 34, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. That's kind of bad news, isn't it? Everyone who sins is a slave of sin. That's why we sin. It's why we still have this in us, as Paul describes it in Romans chapter 7, when he cries out, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? And then he answers his own question. He says, thank, I thank God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. He's the one who's going to set me free from this. And, and so even though they were descendants of Abraham, they needed a savior. And that's what the big affront was. It's what offended them. Why would you say, I need a savior? Because you're a sinner and you need a savior. The slave does not remain in his house forever. The son does remain forever. He's, probably, he's just telling them, look, I'm not just another uh, person who is a member of the nation of Israel. I'm the son of God. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen my father. Therefore, you also the things which you have heard from your father, that is the devil. Now what he's doing is he's quoting from the Old Testament. And over in Luke chapter 24, Jesus was continually validating the Old Testament. I'm just trying to establish this, that you understand that the Old Testament by Jesus was validated as the word of God. It was the written word of God. That's different than, than the spoken word of God. You can say you heard something and maybe you misheard it. But when you say the Bible says, and I say, let me see that. I want to see where it says that. I've never heard that before. And you look and you see. Well, Jesus validated the Old Testament. First of all, this written word of God that you can count on it, you can rely upon it. It is the very word of God. In, verse, in Luke 24, 44, he says, Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, that's the, that's the official title of the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament. They didn't call it the Old Testament. It was the Bible. It was the Word of God. And he says, All these things, they must be fulfilled. They are the Word of God. So my point is, is that Jesus validated the Old Testament as the word of God. And then in the upper room discourse, chapter, John chapter 14, 15, and 16, Jesus pre-authenticates the New Testament because he tells his, his apostles, he says, it's good that I go away because if I don't go away, I keep, the Spirit's not going to come to you. But I'm going to go away and I'm going to send the Spirit. And the Spirit is going to remind you of everything I said. Can you imagine living with somebody for three years and then remembering everything they said? <laughs> Why would that be hard? <laughs> yeah, it'd be difficult, wouldn't it? And so he says, the Spirit's going to come and he's going to remind you everything I said. I think one of the most striking examples of this is in John 7, when 
Jesus says to them that uh, he's at the Feast of Tabernacles, and he says, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who is believing in me out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And then John, 95-year-old John, who's writing this, 50, 60 years later after the event, says, he spoke this of the Holy Spirit, who was to be given them, but he had not been given to them yet because Christ had not yet been glorified. Isn't that amazing? He had a memory of that. How was that? It was the work of the Spirit. The Spirit, it says that the, he's, Jesus says in the upper room that the Spirit will lead them into all the truth. He will remind them of everything that he said, and he will show them things to come. And so that's the validation of the entire New Testament, the epistles, the gospels, And so here we have these four Gospels, and they quote Jesus verbatim years after he had said these things. And so we have the New Testament, and it's validated by Jesus that this is the word of God. The Apostle Paul says in Colossians that God had appointed him to fill up the word of God. He actually understood that it was was an assignment that God had given him that he was going to fill up the word of God. And so we have 13 epistles. I bet you could name every one of them. Maybe I have somebody stand up and tell us what they are. He had 13 epistles that Paul wrote that are part of the New Testament. Because the Spirit of God did this glorious work of giving us a written word of God. I I hope you understand how important that is. In in 2 Timothy 3.16, it says, All scripture is God-breathed and profitable for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished, equipped for every good work. Now think of that. It says that this is, the, this is what is going to equip the man of God to do his work. What he's talking about is those who are called to teach his people. It is they have the word of God in the, this Bible that we carry around. Imagine this, that I can carry around the word of God in a book. This is the word of God. And I want to tell you, there is no word given that is better than this. It has, in fact, this is what it must be tested by. We are told back in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians that we should examine everything carefully that is said. We should examine it. The Apostle Paul, if you remember, he was driven out of Thessalonica and he goes down to Berea. And over in Berea, It says they were more noble than those in Thessalonica because they kept checking out what Paul said. Is this true? Is this really true? And so they would look at what all they had were the Old Testament scriptures. They would look and see if what Paul was teaching was really true. So this is the standard that we submit everything to. Every time there becomes a new message on the scene, somebody has a new message, and there's all kinds of them going on. I hope you understand that. If you have a television, you can see it all the time. There are all kinds of people, or a computer, and all kinds of people are saying things that are the word of God. And then when you look at the written word of God, you discover that it isn't consistent with the written word of God. And you remember that the Apostle Paul says you should examine carefully, examine carefully all these things that are said to be the word of God. I'm telling you, there's all kinds of stuff floating through the church that has nothing to do with God's revelation. It has to do with man's own doing. And sometimes it is so clear 
Sometimes it's confusing, and other times it's just so clear. There's something that's rampant over the whole world. In, in Africa, it's the most predominant theology that's being passed around, and it's called the prosperity gospel. It's that uh, basically you hear it, such things as name it and claim it or grab it and gab it or gab it and grab it, whatever it is, I can't remember. But the idea is that God wants you rich. I hate to tell you this, but that just isn't the Bible. The Bible doesn't say that God wants every Christian rich. It does say he wants you to be willing to give everything you have away for the needs of others, but he doesn't say God wants you rich. I want you rich, but I'm not God. And so what we have to do is we have to test these messages from the Bible, from the Word of God. And that's what this whole text is about in, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. What Paul is telling them is, you've heard, you've heard this claim. The claim is that I have sent a message to your people, and I have told you, you're in the day of the Lord. That's why things are going so bad. And what Paul says is, it doesn't come from me. Now notice in, in, in 2 Thessalonians 2, First of all, this false claim that filled them with anxiety. It filled them with all kinds of anxiety. They were shaken of it and by it. And this is what the message was. You're in the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord has arrived. But this was a false claim. First of all, it contradicted the truth of the rapture. What we saw back in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, verse 13, says that they had been worried about the fact that some had died and not, they had not, in, had, had not experienced the rapture of the church, them being caught up to meet Christ in the air and to ever be with the Lord. In fact, I probably should read that to you. If you'll turn back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, this is exactly how it goes. It's, uh, it, this is what Paul writes. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers. Now, these are young believers about those who are asleep, or that is that have passed away. And he calls it a sleep. He actually uses a word. The word cemetery in the New Testament is a word that meant a hotel. It was a place where people went and to get, to get rest. And what he's talking about is the fact that the difference between the believer and the unbeliever is the, the believer is going to live again. He's going to be raised from the dead. He's going to enjoy eternity in fellowship with the living God. And so he says... I don't want you to be worried about those who are asleep that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. That's the difference between the believer who knows about the promise of resurrection and the promise of being in the presence of God for all eternity. And he says, I want you to understand that those who die are not going to miss out on this day, this day of restoration and renewal and being reunited with Jesus Christ. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, and that means through his agency. They sleep through his agency. When a person dies, a believer dies, it's pictured as Jesus bringing them into this place of rest. Isn't that amazing? He's in control of it. He's the one who brings them to this place of rest. And, and the Bible says that to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. And what that means is you will never be cut off from the person of God. You will be with him forever. But what he's talking about, first of all, is that there's a day coming when Jesus is going to return. And he goes on to say, for this do we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we, also, we who are alive, 
who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who, are, who have fallen asleep. Living, people who are living at the time Jesus takes his church into his presence is not going to go ahead of those who have died. And he goes on and explains, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. So the dead in Christ rise first and then the, those who've been raised from the dead along with the other believers are going to be caught up. It says, then we who are alive, who are left will be caught up together with them, with these ones who have been raised from the dead in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air so that we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. I think that's one of the simplest, clearest, easiest to understand promises about the future, that we are going to be caught up to be with the Lord and thus we will ever be with the Lord. There's gonna be personal familiarity. We're gonna be in his presence. We're gonna experience what it's like to live forever in his presence. That's simple. That's the simplest part of eschatology, the doctrine of last things, is Christ is returning, and he's going to catch his people up, and he's going to bring them into the presence of God. Right after this, in 1 Thessalonians, in chapter 5, he begins to talk about the day of the Lord, because this is what is going to initiate the day of the Lord in this sense, that everything right now on the earth, we have a restrainer. In fact, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me not do that. Notice the, the true condition that should have caused them Peace, and that is verse 3 of 2 Thessalonians 2. And in verse 3 it says, let, not, let no one deceive you in any way. Let no one deceive you in any way. What does he mean? Somebody has, tell, has made a claim that, that God had said through Paul that the day of the Lord had begun. And he says to them, let no one deceive you in any way. I want to tell you, there's stuff floats around uh, among Christian circles all the time that deceives people because it tells them things that are just not true. And you say, well, yeah, but I don't want you to tell me everything. Well, I'm not, I don't want to either. I want you to get in your word and realize that this word of God is yours. This is why when Paul says, for all scripture is God-breathed, pasa grafe theanustas, all written scripture has this quality of being created by God. That's what God breathed means. He was, this book was created by God through men. He used men to write it, but it's a word that you have possession of. Does everybody here have a Bible? If you don't have a Bible, we'll give you one. Because this is a gift from God. You can examine anything that's being taught through this book and find out if it's true or if it's false. And I want to tell you, when somebody says, well, the Lord spoke to me today, what I say is, I don't need to hear that because I've got this book that was spoken to us nearly 2,000 years ago, a little over 2,000 years ago, a little less than 2,000 years ago, rather, and it tells me the truth, and I can test everything people say that God has said and know whether it's true or not. And that's exactly what we were told to do, we were instructed to do. We were instructed in 1 Corinthians 14 that when there were messages going out in the church and there were prophecies and tongues and so forth, that we should examine them. It says that we should examine what they say. Is it consistent with the word of God? Isn't that a gift that God gives you a written Bible so that you can test every claim that comes your way? You know, the Lord just told me that if I walked 25 miles a day, I would never die. 
That's a lie. You might die the first day. But I have a book. I have a written revelation. That's what graphe means. That's what the, the scriptures mean. It means, it means the, bio, the word of God written down. And when, when the, in the writer of Hebrews, in chapter 4, verse 25, it says, the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword. I misquoted the, the address to that verse, but it's, the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword, able to, it pierces to the dividing asunder. Now, piercing means it's, a, it's like a knife, a two-edged knife, and it can pierce right into your heart. He's not talking about physically, he's talking about spiritually. It speaks to your heart. And it can even divide between bone and marrow, soul and spirit. Those two things, soul and spirit, are two spiritual realities in every person. They have, they have soul and they have spirit because we were created in the image of God. And I'm, I'm not going to define those two things for you, but they're capacities we have. I have soul and I have spirit. Now, you can tell somebody has soul because we feel life. And God is said to have soul, that he feels life. And so I ha- he says that this, this book is so sharp, it can penetrate into your mind and make you understand the difference between soul and spirit. Go buy five theology books or five psychology books and, and read what they say the differences are, and then read the Bible, and you'll say, wow, this is so clear. Why is that? Because it's sharper than a two-edged sword, and it pierces the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, bone and marrow, and it's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of my heart. Think about this for a second. Some of you that are married, can you ever figure out what's really going on, the thoughts and intentions of your spouse? It's hard, isn't it? Well, maybe Rod Lee can do it. I don't know, but um, it's really hard. And yet it says that this book, it just, it's like a mirror. You look at it and it tells you exactly what's true of you. You see it. And it says, he says, he, he opens our eyes to the thoughts and intentions of our heart and lays us bare before him to whom we must give an account. In other words, it shows us what we're going to be accountable for. I'm going to stand before God. And this book shows me what I, need, what I am accountable for. What I need to understand about how the gospel penetrating my heart has done something to me and what it means, what the implications of that are. Why should I witness to people? That's kind of a, that takes a lot of time and effort, doesn't it? And a lot of times people don't want to hear it. But I do it because this is what he tells us. The word of God tells me. This is my privilege. I get to talk to people about the gospel. And so do you, because you're a born-again believer. Not because you've been to seminary, but because you've been to the cross and you have the Holy Spirit living in you. And so you have this capacity to speak to people about the living Christ. And so he says the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing the dividing of soul and spirit, bone and marrow, and is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Sometimes we have a hard time judging our own thoughts and intentions, don't we? We do something and then we start wondering, maybe feeling a little guilty, Man, I wonder if I was just being selfish. The word of God will reveal that to you. It will, it's like a mirror that you look at it, and it shows you the truth about your heart. It shows you the truth, the reflection of the truth of your heart. And it's why it drives you to repentance. Your eyes are opened through the word of God. That's what the Spirit uses it for. And I need to hear it and understand it. So the true condition 
that should have caused them to stand firm was simply judging this message that wasn't true and coming to see that it wasn't true. They were not in the day of the Lord. He says, because something has to take place. Not only is this inconsistent with the rapture, but also the apostasy must occur first. What's the apostasy? Apostasy, it just means to stand against something. Stand against something that you before held to. I believe this. And then you turned against it, and you became an enemy of the cross. And he says, this is, there's an apostasy coming on this, in this world. There are going to be people who turn against God and against the truth of the cross and stand against him. So he says there's an apostasy that's coming, a rebellion. And then he also mentions the unveiling of the man of lawlessness. And all that means is he's the chief apostate, the man of lawlessness. You know how it is today? You see these news stories and you go, wow, the world's going to hell. It's amazing, isn't it? How bad it's getting. You ain't seen nothing yet. That's what Paul is saying. There's got to be the revelation of the man of of lawlessness, this chief apostate. But he says, gives us some good news. In verses 5 through 7, there's a delay that's now in effect. That is, something is, is restraining this man of lawlessness. He can't do all that he wants to do. The reason that the world doesn't go up in flame is because there is, there is a restrainer. And he says in verse 6, you know what restrains him now. Interestingly, when we ask the question, who or what is this? He actually does something kind of strange in this text but it's helpful to us. He refers to the Holy Spirit with a neuter pronoun and a masculine pronoun. In verse 6, it's a neuter pronoun. What I mean by that, if you've ever studied language like Spanish or something, where you had to actually, uh, an, an inflected language, and you learned about gender, that every word, every noun has a gender, and you have to always be in agreement with that. If you're talking about a feminine noun, and you use a, a, an adjective, it has to be in the feminine form. That's really enlightening, isn't it? <laughs> I look at your face and I think, this reminds me, I taught Greek one time at Valley Bible Church. I taught, I had 31 students. On the fourth week, I had 13 students. And you know what I did to, to thin things out? I didn't know I was doing it, but I did it. I simply explained to them the rules of accenting of the Greek words. Drove them absolutely crazy. In fact, I had, all, I lost all the women all I had was a bunch of young guys who wanted to learn Greek so they could use it in Bible teaching. That was it. Well, I'm just saying, I know that that doesn't strike a chord with you, but what he's talking about is that the, this, this Holy Spirit, his, his title, he's a spirit, pneuma, is neuter. And therefore, sometimes the pronouns that are used of the Holy Spirit is it. And all of us have been taught you never refer to the Holy Spirit as it because he's a person, Right? He's the third person of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit's a person, and yet sometimes he's referred to as a, in a pronoun as neuter. And that's not because he is neuter naturally, but he is grammatically. There's a difference between grammatical agreement and, uh, and natural agreement. All I'm saying is there's something funny here in the sense that he's referred to both as he and it. Well, guess what? That's, when it refers to this, that's exactly what the, who the restrainer is. It's the Holy Spirit. 
the Holy Spirit's the restrainer. He's the only person in the Godhead. It has to be God because only God is stronger than Satan. Remember, in Jude, it says that uh, even Michael would not get into a dispute with the devil because he had a higher rank than him. And so the only one who could restrain Satan is God himself. And so this, the person of the Godhead he's talking about is the Holy Spirit. He's able to restrain the man of lawlessness. You know, sometimes uh, I heard uh, Estes Johnson one time say, you know what the biggest question is when you're in trouble? When you're really going through difficulties? It's not how big is your problem. The most important thing is how big is your God? How big is your God? Well, the God that is the restrainer is the one who is able. I wanted to read something. I, I did not mean to tell Steve he couldn't read the King James. This is what the King James says. It says, do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now so that in his time he will be revealed. That is the man of lawlessness. But then he goes on and says this, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now uh, letteth will do so until he is taken out of the way. Now the word let is the old English word, the old English word for restrain. But you don't use it that way. Let me go to the store and you say, okay, I'll restrain you. Come in here and let me put the handcuffs on. No, and so this, this, the reason that we have new translations from time to time is because words change meaning. Do you remember what what a really cool car was called when you were a teenager? What was it? I remember when, when they started being calling wheels? Got me some new wheels. You think, really? That old junk you own, you got new wheels on it? No, they meant a new car. The, word, the meaning of words change. And so that's why we have new translations from time to time. The King James is a great translation. It's just that some of the words are archaic. And so let does no longer mean restrain. And sometimes people get confused at those, those kinds of things. But I tell you what, you'd be better off reading the King James than not reading the Bible. So what Paul is saying is, is that the day of the Lord hasn't begun. It's not going to begin until God's ready for it. And when we see stuff happening on the news that's crazy and wicked and evil, we don't have to say, well, the day of the Lord has come. You remember that book, one of the most popular books ever written, sold more copies than the great 99% of books, is Left Behind. And it was about Jesus was, uh, had taken all the people of God away. They were just gone. They were just missing. And everybody trying to figure this out. And there was a lot of stuff in that that just wasn't biblical. But it had quite an impact, didn't it? A lot of people were impacted by that. To wake up and think about the fact, you know what? Christ is coming back and there's a day of judgment coming. What Paul is explaining here is it's not going to happen until the restrainer is taken out of the way. Because someone is restraining wickedness. It isn't as bad as it could be. It feels like it, but it's not. It isn't as bad as it's going to be. But when the restrainer is taken out of the way, now the restrainer is the one restraining the man of lawlessness. It's, it's the Holy Spirit restraining Satan and his man, the man of lawlessness. But one of these days, the Holy Spirit's going to stop restraining the lawless one and things are going to break out. It's going to become incredibly evil. But before that happens, or at least right before that happens, there's going to be what's called the rapture of the church. 
that Christ is going to, and the word rapture is the Latin form of the word. The word in, the, in your Bible, it says rapture, but what it is, it's a translation of the Greek term harpazo. You already knew that harpazo means to be caught up, right? And, uh, and so what it means is, it means to be caught up forcefully. He's going to come and he's going to get all of his believers. Now today, tomorrow's a holiday, right? And so I assume there's a lot of people out here and there out on the beach and doing different things. But one of these days, there's going to be a meeting in the air, and everybody's going to show up. Everybody's going to show up. Now, that's hard to believe. I might believe Jesus is coming, but you, you mean there's going to be a meeting of Christians, and they're all going to show up? Yes, they're all going to show up, because he's going to take them and bring them into his presence. And there we will be. We'll ever be with the Lord. Can you imagine that? We'll never be separated from the Lord. We'll be, we'll be literally physically in his presence for all eternity. We'll know who he is, our Savior. And God, our Father, will be there and we'll see him. And so the restraining, the idea of restrainer is simply that he is keeping the lawless one from being as bad as he wants to be ruining and destroying this human race. He does say in verse 7, lawlessness, the mystery of lawlessness is at work, but the man of lawlessness is going to be destroyed by the restrainer. And so we, we know that when lawlessness does break out like never before, it's it's because God has a plan and a purpose. You know, I think you could think about this in your own life. Some of you have been saved a long time. And uh, sometimes you think, well, you know what? It's, it seems like uh, there's, it, I, thought that, I thought Christ would come a long time ago. I thought he would come when I was in my 40s. He isn't here yet. And so sometimes we, we begin to think, I don't know, you know, is this, is, can I really expect Jesus Christ to return? Can I really expect to see him with my eyes and be changed by his presence? Is that possible? It's not just possible, it is absolutely true. It's going to happen. And so what he's saying is this is why there's this, this uh, what seems to be a waiting period. We're waiting until it's God's timing and God has the perfect timing. Now, down in verse 11, he talks about the deception. He says, therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe the lie. What he's saying is this man of lawlessness is going to fool a lot of people. He's going to fool a lot of people who call themselves Christians that are not Christians. You ever met somebody like that? Somebody who claimed to be a Christian wasn't? Now, the only reason I know that is because there are some people who claim to be a Christian, and then all of a sudden they come to their senses and say, you know what? I'm not a believer. There's a guy that, that uh, is on the radio, has a radio program, a Christian radio program now. But he pastored for something like 30 years before he got saved. He thought he was a believer. But finally, the Lord Jesus Christ opened his eyes that he needed Christ. He needed salvation. He needed to be born again. Some of you are, are most of you are familiar with John 3, when Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he says, teacher, you must be from, from God. You must have come from God because of the things you say and do. And you would think that Jesus would say, well, thank you very much. This was Nicodemus, 
and he was the teacher of Israel, which meant he was the chief teacher. He was the guy that was highest on the highest rung. And uh, so he says to Jesus this, and then Jesus says to him, instead of complimenting him and saying, well, thank you very much, he said, oh, you can't see the kingdom of God or enter the kingdom of God unless you've been born again. He said, the only way that you could know the truth about who I am is if you're born again. And then he goes on to explain what it means to be born again in John 3. And we end up down in 3.16 where he says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He was saying that to Nicodemus because Nicodemus was a, was a religious expert. He was one of the highest in the whole group of Jewish leaders. And yet Jesus says, you can't even see the kingdom of God. And you certainly cannot enter the kingdom of God until you're born again. Now, there's clear evidence that Nicodemus was born again. He became born again. And he followed Jesus. That's still true. You cannot enter the kingdom of God. You can't see the kingdom of God. You can't understand why you were created until you're born again. And only God can do that. And that's exactly what he's done. That's why Jesus said, God, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He's talking about the world of people that are living as enemies of God. And he says, but God loved them so much, he sent his only son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. And so even though there is this day coming when the restrainer is going to be taken out of the way and all evil and wickedness is going to break loose. And yet what we have, What's going to happen to us is we're going to enter into the presence of Christ. We're going to be blessed beyond imagination. We're going to enter into the very presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he says to us in verses 13 through 17, there is a deliverance that must be received by faith. You have to listen to this. He says, beloved, and what that means, beloved, the form of the word means this. You have been loved by God. So what he's saying is is that this is a demonstration of God's covenant love when you receive Christ. When you enter into, when you're born again, it's because God is demonstrating his covenant love towards you. It means you have become an object of his love. That's what the Christian life's all about. It's living as an object of God's love. It's responding to his glorious love in Christ Jesus. And then he tells us that it's a, it's a result of God's free choice. He says in John 15, 16, I'm going a little far away from our passage, but in John 15, 16, uh, Jesus said, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. And he'll say the same thing to us. I remember when I first heard that, I couldn't believe it because I'd been born into a Christian family. And I knew I was a Christian because my mother was a Christian. My grandfather was a Christian. My dad was a Christian. My uncles were Christians. That's why I was a Christian. It wasn't because I was chosen. But then I found out that the Bible says it over and over and over and over again. Now, it's okay for you to say, that really bothers me. It's not bothering Christ. It's not, it's not bothering the Father. He's not up there wringing his hands going, man, I don't know what to do about this election thing. This is really difficult. I can't, I can't quite get people to understand this. He's not worried about that. It's just a truth. And the wonderful thing about the, the Bible, you don't have to understand everything in it. You don't have to come to perfect knowledge of this. All you have to do is believe it's true. 
and understand that you need, sometimes you need to dig a little deeper to understand what it's actually saying. For example, the Bible says God chose you in him before the foundation of the world to become holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined you to, uh, to adoption as sons. That just means he planned to bring you into the family. But then he also says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, God desires all men to be saved. And that is really true. And that's why we have both a, we have, an elect, we have this elective love and covenant love, and it can only be secured by faith. This is what, how we got saved. We believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you think, boy, that guy that shared the gospel with me, he was amazing. He totally convinced me. I became convinced that the gospel was true. No, let me tell you who convinced you. It was the Holy Spirit. The God who said, let light shine out of darkness is the God who caused the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ to shine in your hearts through the Holy Spirit. It's the work of the Spirit. And when he does his work, you will be convinced. You will be convinced. All the doubts about the truth of it will be gone. But you still won't understand everything about it. But that's okay. God's not wringing his hands. He's not worried because you're not getting it all or you're not believing it all or whatever. I I understand the difficulty of certain biblical truths, like the biblical truth of sovereign election or that God is sovereign. I remember hearing a guy, I think I already told you this story, but I remember this guy that I saw him, somebody showed me a YouTube video and this was, he was, they were interviewing this guy. He had a real severe disability, some kind of muscular dystrophy in which all he could do was lay in a bed. And so this guy asked him, he says, what gives you comfort in life? as you're laying here every day, he said that my God is sovereign. Now, sovereign means God can do whatever he wants, whatever he chooses. He is sovereign. Now, that would be horrible if we were talking about the devil, right? Sovereignty would be horrible if we said Satan is sovereign. He can do whatever he wants, whatever he decides to do. But he's not sovereign. He is a creature created by God and controlled by God. He, can't, he cannot... He cannot get out from under God's constraints. And so this guy said, the thing that encouraged me the most is God is sovereign. And I know that God loves me. Isn't that amazing? I know God loves me. And so the fact that he's sovereign. And so this thing that I'm going through, I hate it. I wish I could get out of it. But I know that God is sovereign and I can trust him. And this salvation that he says we can have right now can only be received by faith. He says in verse 14, to this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, there's a general call, which means God says, whoever will come will be saved. Acts chapter 2, verse 21 says, all that call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Some people think, oh, God is keeping people from getting saved. No, that's not what election is. Election is God can work through stubborn people. God has the ability to open your eyes so that you can see the truth of who Christ is and believe on him. That's what happened to you. I know that some of you think you just made an independent decision, that you're so sharp, you were able to, to, to decide that you were going to believe this message about Christ because you, you were, you're very smart, and so you worked on your computer and you came to the conclusion, oh, this is really true. No, the reason that you came to believe it was because the Holy Spirit opened your eyes and gave you the sight to see the truth of who Christ is. And so the fact that he is sovereign over our lives 
isn't diminishing, it's expanding. It's the most expansive thing I could ever imagine. That I serve a God who is able to open my heart and open my mind. Aren't there times when you just, you really just have this thing in you that you get rebellious about some truth that you run into in Scripture? It says that God is, well, like this, like God is sovereign. I've had more angry Christians to talk to me about election than just about anything else. I had, a, I had this couple in my class one time. I was teaching on the doctrine of God, and we were talking about election. And they were really, they, they had bought into a theology called openness theology, which means God doesn't know the future. It's just that he's so powerful and strong and smart that he can deal with the future, but he doesn't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Well, that's not the Bible. The Bible says he knows what's going to happen tomorrow. And he has a plan. And he works everything according to his plan. And I don't know why that upsets you. That's what you do. You know, if you're going to travel to New York City, you're going to map it out on your map or your GPS, and you're going to follow directions. The Bible says that God has a plan, and he's doing everything according to his plan. And he's able to. And so he says, we must receive this, this salvation by faith. Faith, let me explain. Faith is, is simply this. The, the Greek word for faith means to believe that something is true, but it also means to trust. It means to trust. I, I told you about that picture. It was on the news where this guy threw out a little baby out a window on the second story floor in order to save its life. And the guy below caught it, some big rough-looking fireman, caught this baby, and it's, it's delivered its life, saves its life. See, the father was trusting in that fireman's ability to catch that baby. And that's faith. That's trust. What God wants you to do, what God's calling people to do, is to trust his son. The father says, my son is absolutely trustworthy. You can trust him. You can put yourself in his hands completely because he will be faithful to fulfill every promise he's made. And so this is why when we come to the word of God, what it does is opens up for us this glorious plan and purpose of God that he wants you to experience his blessing. And, he's, and all he says is, I want you to trust my son. I just want you to trust my son. He's done everything necessary to bring you into fellowship with me. Trust him. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.